Well, this morning we are continuing in our study through John, the Gospel of John, and as promised, last week we spent time in the first 15 verses of John chapter 3, which detail for us a nighttime conversation between Jesus and one of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And within the context of that conversation, Jesus will say the words that are very familiar to all of us, beloved, probably the most well-trafficked corner of the entire Bible, John 3.16, which I'm going to read right now. Jesus said this to Nicodemus as they sat together in the moonlight, talking about those things that matter most. Jesus told him, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There, there it is. I think probably the most concise description of the gospel hope that Christians have in all the Bible. But like all things that are concise uh, in this way, there's a lot of meaning hanging off of every word. And it's a bit like, uh, because we don't have much room in our freezer, we buy those little cans of apple juice and, and orange juice, and you put it in the thing, and then you have to add water, and it comes up, and then it's, you know. So one little verse contains a whole world of ideas. And uh, somebody asked me this past week, how are you going to do an entire sermon on just one verse? And I thought, boy, that how can we not spend the rest of the year talking about John 3.16? There's just a lot in here to talk about. Uh, interestingly, I was um, reading this past week uh, just in a completely unrelated thing, and I read about something that archaeologists had found in Peru. Within the last decade, archaeologists researching the ancient Chimu people of Peru were working on a promontory overlooking the ocean. A lot of grave goods and things had been found at this location. It was nearby an abandoned ancient capital of the Chimu Empire called Chan Chan. And as they were excavating within the past decade, they made a grim discovery. At some point, approximately 500 to 550 years ago, more than 140 children had been driven to a site overlooking the Pacific Ocean where they were ritually sacrificed. I won't go into any of the gory details. (laughs) I found it very unpleasant to read them. But based on careful study of the bones, they were able to determine exactly how these children were sacrificed on that cliff overlooking the ocean. According to researchers, though, this is the largest incident of mass child sacrifice ever recorded in the Americas and very likely in the entire world. The children varied in age from as young as five to as old as 14. And I found that that detail difficult to wrap my mind around because I currently have a five and a 14-year-old. Four of my five children fall within that age range. And Charlie, of course, is five. Lucy is 14. And my father's heart just kind of rebels at the idea of ever allowing my children to be used in that way. These children certainly had parents. Prior to being sacrificed, the faces of these children had been smeared with a reddish paint. 
Then they were marched to the site where, without again going into all the horrible details, the deed was done, and they were buried facing out toward the sea. Head researcher Gabriel Prieto believes that this event may have been triggered by weather events that brought severe flooding to the region, and which the Chimu likely interpreted as evidence of the gods' displeasure with them. And so Prieto speculates that the Chimu were possibly offering the gods the most important thing they had as a society, their children, all in an effort to placate the gods. Of course, child sacrifice or human sacrifice is not a phenomenon unique to the Chimu people of Peru, nor is it even unique to those pre-Columbian cultures of the Americas, those, the Incas, the Mayas, the Aztecs. They all practiced human sacrifice. Nor is it even unique to them, though. Evidence of human sacrifice and ritual child sacrifice have been found among people groups the world over down through the ages, and in fact, it still continues today. The very idea of offering sons and daughters as a sacrifice is an offense to our moral sensibilities. It's deeply repugnant, is it not? The idea that anybody in any age would do this fills us with revulsion, anger, outrage, And the thought of those 140 children, wasted, forsaken by their protective fathers, taken from their mothers, or worse, offered by them into uncaring hands, fills us with a deep, poignant sadness that I really can't allow my imagination to linger on for too long. As a a parent, I can't help but picture my own children in that place. I can't picture little Charlie, can't help but picture little Charlie on the edge of a cliff and these things are about to happen to him. What sorts of things went through their minds? What feelings? The Chimu, and this is an important thing to note, did not worship because they desired to serve God, but rather because it was their way of getting the gods to serve them. Their way of approaching God was that they wanted the gods to do something for them. They wanted something from a God that they didn't want, a God that they feared, a God that was horrible. So you better sacrifice to them, and the bigger the request, the bigger the sacrifice needs to be, and thus their mental calculations brought them to this place on a cliff overlooking the ocean. And of course, this was the attitude of the Canaanite and the Amorite nations in the Old Testament who also commonly practiced human sacrifice and worship to their gods. In Leviticus 20, 1 through 5, for example, we read about how the Moabites would sacrifice their children to the god Molech and how God hated the practice. And in Deuteronomy 12, 31, we read, you must not worship the the Lord your God in their way. Because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. And in a very revealing passage in Deuteronomy 18, God says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. 
There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Well, in light of all that the Bible says about human and child sacrifice, it was interesting to me when not that long ago I was listening to a group of atheists in a panel discussion. Sometimes I listen to podcasts, uh, not because they agree with my perspective, but exactly because they don't. And I find it makes me deeply uncomfortable. (laughs) Sometimes I do that thing where I'm like yelling at a screen. Do you guys do this? Do you ever yell at a screen? Or in this case, at my iPod. But I was listening to a panel discussion of atheist thought leaders. It's a whole group of them sitting there, and their whole purpose in this conversation was to talk about the Bible and Christianity from an atheist perspective. And they said something that troubled me and that honestly I'd never thought about before. Although they did not mention the Chimu explicitly, they lumped Christians, you and me, State Road Advent Christian Church, all of Christendom down through the ages in with groups like the Chimu as people whose religion celebrated the goodness and necessity of sacrificing a child. They made the statement that the sacrifice of a son formed the core of Christian teachings and belief. And to prove their point, do you know what Bible verse they quoted? (laughs) John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Hmm. Are Christians people who celebrate a child's sacrifice? Well, that made me look at John 3.16 from a different perspective than I had ever had before. So what do you think? Do they have a point? I have to confess that for a moment, maybe about a half mile or so, I drove in stunned silence. (laughs) Have you ever been just shoved off your feet ideologically? That was me. I was a little bit, uh, that was a, a haymaker out of left field. Didn't see that coming, and I was taken aback for a moment. But as I drove and got further down the road, I started yelling at my iPod. <laughs> I started to uh, protest. They absolutely do not have a point. John 3.16 is describing nothing like what those archaeologists found in Peru. And I I yelled at my iPod, you've got Jesus and John 3.16 all wrong, completely. However, even as I was having a very pretend conversation with that panel discussion, I was drawn into a very real and wonderfully dynamic back and forth with God. Every counter-argument that I made against what I had just heard on this panel discussion Uh, morphed into praise as my mind turned in gratitude towards God. I'm very grateful for having listened to that podcast and to have heard that horrible idea because it really did draw me into enjoying God and John 3.16 more. First, John 3.16 is not about a life taken. It is about a life given. Whereas the Chimu were helpless people, motivated by self-interest, seeking to appease and placate powerful deities, John 3.16 is about a powerful deity, motivated by sacrificial love, seeking to deliver those who could not help themselves by giving himself. 
You see, the Chimu were worshiping a God who delighted in a bloodthirsty way in the killing of children. Our God, who is the great enemy of death and who knew no sin, gave himself in sacrifice to save human lives, not take them. And unlike those 140 children herded against their will to a violent end, Jesus went to the cross willingly. In John 10:18, Jesus said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Also in John 10, Jesus described himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. There is a world of difference is there not, between a shepherd laying his life down for the sheep and the sheep sacrificing some of their own to keep the wolves at bay. (laughs) This is essentially the dynamic that that panel discussion totally missed. Later in John 15, Jesus would famously say, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Brothers and sisters, my heart hurts for the Chimu and all of those who are ignorant of John 3.16, the God of John 3.16, those who spend their lives trying to please a God who is wrathful rather than understanding the God who took all of that wrath onto himself that we might know life. I wish they'd known about Jesus I wish all those children could have just gone home and been with mom and dad. I wish the Chimu had known about the God who sacrifices himself for his people. That's the God of Christianity. John 3.16 tells us four things that I wish all people knew. This single verse contains these four things. One, the great danger that hangs over all people. That's death. I wish also all people knew the motive of our God in coming to us. And that's love. I wish all people knew the means by which we are saved. That's Jesus, that's the giving of Jesus, the sacrifice on the cross. And I wish all people, fourthly, knew the hope-filled destiny to which we have been called, which John 3.16 wraps all up in that phrase, eternal life. Let's walk through these four things this morning. First, the great danger that hangs over fallen humanity. Uh, Jesus says to Nicodemus, shall not perish. It's an uncomfortable truth. But in 50 or 70 years, most, if not all of us here in this building today, will be dead. It's true. Over the course of our lives, we try not to dwell on that too much. We all know death is coming, but we try to shove it down out of our consciousness. We get busy with hobbies and work and other things, and when something happens, some news report or a phone call or something where death intrudes on our happy bliss, we very quickly try to just la 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 la, just shove it down, put that away. We don't like to dwell or think about the fact that we're going to die someday very much. 
Even though we all know death is coming, we play this game. We turn up the radio, we turn on the TV, we get busy with various distractions. We don't want to dwell on it, either happening to us or those that we love. But it can't be sidestepped. It can't be ignored. The reality of our own coming appointment with death, our own mortality, must be dealt with in a head-on kind of way because even now, the appointed day of our death is coming in like the tide. It's unstoppable. Most people spend their entire lives preparing for life. They go to school, they learn a trade, they build relationships, they plan vacations, they lay aside money for various things. But people spend relatively very little time preparing for death. And the question that John 3.16 confronts us with is, are you ready this morning to come to the end? Are you prepared? What if that day is today? This life we live is like a dot. You just put a dot right there, and extending out from that dot is an infinite line that just goes on and on and on forever. The dot is our life. It's that between the date of my birth and the date of my death, it's just a little dot. And extending out from that is the great yawning chasm of eternity. And sometimes I'm often brought up short by just how little of my time and resources and energy and thinking is spent on things, well, how much of that is spent on things that have their beginning and end in that little dot. And how little do I think about the great yawning chasm of eternity? Hebrews 9.27 makes it very clear that we will all die. It's appointed unto all men once to die. And in James 4.14 describes our lives as a vapor that appears for a short time and then vanishes away. John 3.16 is written against the backdrop and the reality of death. Uh, I've, I've made this point before, but when I think about this, that God, who is the sovereign creator, he made the world with purpose and intentionality. I, I don't need this point to prove that God hates death because he says so. <laughs> he is the God of life. But have you ever thought that when God made the world, he assigned that smell to death? Can you think of a worse smell than death? I can't. That's the worst. It's the worst smell I can think of is the smell of death. And when God made the world, that's the smell he assigned to decay. Could have made it smell like strawberries or lemons or something like that. But he didn't. He assigned that smell. He hates death. He is opposed to death. How wonderful it is that the God who has revealed himself in the Bible does not de require and delight in human deaths like the gods that the Chimu imagined, but that we worship the great enemy of death and that the greatest danger that hangs over all humanity is what God has delivered us from. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's how Jesus describes himself, that he's the life. 
And in John 10, Jesus declared that he came that we may have life and have it abundantly. I think how small the objectives of those Chimu worshipers were on that cliff face. In other words, they just wanted the weather patterns to stop. (laughs) They just wanted a little bit more comfort in this life. They wanted favor and blessing in these days. They're not dealing with the great metaphysical question that hangs over all humanity, what happens to our souls after we die. They're willing to trade a little bit of death now to have a little bit of a nicer life. And Christians are, I'm just so glad that our God has dealt with death. <laughs> He's, he has, he has, we don't have to sidestep this issue. We don't have to worry or wonder about when the day comes. He has, in very generous language in his word, made it plain to us that in Jesus, through the truth of John 3.16, he has dealt with death forever. It's done. And what is his motive in doing all this? This is really the biggest question. We come here to point two. The second thing we find in John 3.16 is God's motive in coming to us. And God's motive in sending Jesus is wrapped up in this one word, love. Jesus' motive in going to the cross was love. Again, in John 15, 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And identifying the motive of God is important for us to see. The Bible trains us to look beyond any act to what motivates the person in doing it. In fact, the Bible is very suspicious from Genesis to Revelation of acts Uh, in general, that works can be done for a great variety of reasons. You might have, for example, in the story of Jesus is there outside the treasury and he sees rich people coming and pouring just buckets of money out of their abundance into the temple treasury. And then a widow comes and put in one mite. And Jesus says that she has given more than those who gave vast amounts out of their abundance. Why? Well, a mite is objectively less money. But to God, what mattered most was the motive behind the giving. This is, in fact, all that matters. This is supreme. You can do a seeming act of worship in a way that seeks to self-exalt, and that is spiritual embezzlement. It's a misappropriation of glory. God is not impressed And in fact, somebody who does an anonymous thing to the glory of God, their motive in doing, even if that thing is smaller, less grand, it's more. And so the motive matters supremely, biblically. When God is talking about any act, really all that matters is the heart that gave birth to the act, not actually what was done or who witnessed it or any of that. So the Bible trains us to look for motives. Why we do a thing is far more important, biblically speaking, than what we do. So when we identify the motive of God in sending Jesus as love, we see that his motivations flowed from who God is and his character. In other words, there are many things that I do, some of which agrees with who I am in my character, and some is done in conflict with who I am in my character, <laughs> Right? I, but um, sometimes I do things 
um, because it benefits me in some way. John 3.16 is saying that what God is doing, he's not doing because he's responsible. He's not doing because he has something to gain. He's not doing for any such reason. It's because he is love. In John 4, we are told that God is love. Love is not merely an attribute of God. It is his very nature. God is not only loving, he is fundamentally love. He's the personification of love. And all of God's actions are done as an expression of who he is. Jesus, in coming to the earth as a savior, had nothing to gain because as God, there was nothing he needed, nothing he lacked. He's perfect. He's perfectly content. He has nothing to gain. He's God. So why did he come and allow his body to be broken for us and his blood spilled out for us? It was because of love for you. He was not motivated by some need in him. He was motivated because of your desperate need. It was for love that he came. He had no need that coming would satisfy, but he saw our desperate need, and for our joy, your joy, he came. And Jesus sacrificed himself. Biblical love is always characterized by action. We talk about this a lot here at State Road. We are a people who love God and love others, and we love actively. Because biblical love always finds expression in a concrete action, something that we do. Biblical words is never just a feeling, never just that. It's never even just words. Biblical love always shows up in what we do. In 1 John 3.18, it says, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Or consider Hebrews 10.24, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Love and good works, they always go hand in hand. And so when God looked with love on fallen humanity, he didn't just sit in heaven wringing his hands or wishing things were differently. He didn't just send us words that says, I wish it weren't like this, I love you. No, what did he, he did something. And that something brings us to the cross, the means by which we are saved. In John 3, 16, it says that he gave his only son. This is the the line that that atheist panel discussion members got all turned around on. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read that God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This verse, another great verse that sums up neatly some truths about our gospel hope, uh, talks about what, what theologians and Bible scholars call the great transaction, right? Great transaction, you go into a store, you give, I was watching a documentary about a missionary and he brought a Native American from the jungles of South America here to the United States and brought him into an American supermarket and he was really blown away by the hyper abundance of foods and they loaded up a grocery cart and they went and the Native was wondering, what's he gonna give in trade for all of this stuff? And when he got time to pay for it, his friend, this missionary, pulled out a credit card 
and gave it to the man. And they processed it and gave the card back and they went out and the guy said, he just let you have all that stuff for free. And he said, no, 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 I gave him my card. He said, ah, but he gave it right back to you. (laughs) He didn't understand. But in transaction, we all know how transactions work, right? We give something to God and God gives something to us. This is the great transaction that happened on the cross. Do you know what we gave God? All our sins. Jesus took all of our sins onto himself. It's not, and he, not only did he take our sins, he actually became sin. That's what this verse says. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin. The very personification of righteousness, the holy, 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 became your worst moments, your hidden shameful things. He became that on the cross, the very embodiment of all of our disobedience and waywardness. But God, Christianity, the cross, is not about Jesus taking stuff from us. It's not just that. It's a transaction. And do you know what you were given in that moment? The perfect righteousness of Christ. He took our sins so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is an amazing transaction. This is way different than the belief system of the Chimu. Jesus took our punishment on the cross, which we had earned and deserved, so that we could receive by grace, through faith, his eternal reward. You know, Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved that great, awful thing that hangs over us as human beings, the reality and the fear of death is removed. You're saved. It's done, and permanently so. For God so loved Josh Tate that he gave his one and only son that Josh, having believed in him, might not perish but have everlasting life. You could put your name right there in that verse. And it's still true. And that brings us to this last phrase in the verse, everlasting life. This is the hope to which we have been called. And something I think um, other pastors have made this observation, but it's always worth noting whenever we talk about everlasting life, I tend to, just in all honesty, when I think about heaven and eternal life, I think of it in terms of something that is coming. But that's not exactly true, right? It's actually a present reality. If you're a Christian today, you are living in eternity right now. Not in your perfected bodies, not in the way that we will, but you are indestructible. You are permanent. You are eternal. You are right now living in everlastingness. In John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Jesus doesn't say will have. He says you have it now. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So in other words, eternal life is not something you wait for after death. It's something you have now. 
if you are presently a believer in Jesus Christ. Another thing I think that we need to, th- when we think about everlasting life, and I, I um, over the years as a pastor, I've done a number of funerals. And most of the funerals I've ever done have actually been for people that I didn't know. Uh, this is an interesting thing, but I'd be sitting in my office in Florida, and uh, the phone would ring and say, hey, do you do funerals? I'm like, sure, always. I always said yes. But I'd meet with the family, and we'd start talking about their hopes for heaven. And most of the time when they would talk about heaven, it occurred to me that the way they described it, it was like God had organized a big family reunion. This was their hope. <laughs> that, that God was not the object of their desire. He wasn't who they wanted. He wasn't they wanted to be with God. They were just hoping that God would make it possible for them all to be together. And if God was there or not, didn't really matter to them. They were just hoping they could see Aunt Flossie again. Right? And this is basically, and and it's not a good time there to break out my theology books. (laughs) You You don't do that in that moment. But I always thought to myself, how sad. How sad. Eternal life is not about getting something apart from God. It's about getting God. And I think very often when when people hear that, they think, oh, but that's not as exciting as seeing Uncle Vern again. I'd rather see Uncle Vern again than Jesus. And that's because we have not yet seen Jesus correctly. That's what's going on in our hearts if Uncle Vern looks like something we'd rather see in eternity than Jesus. It means that we have not yet really fully awakened to a reality of all that Jesus is and what's being offered to us. In John 17, 3, Jesus defined eternal life like this. He was praying to his Father in heaven, and he said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is a personal, intimate, knowing and experiencing of God. In John 1.4, a verse we studied early on in this study, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Uh, Something about this, when it talks about eternal life, I'm rambling here a bit at the end of the message, forgive me. (laughs) Um, When it talks about eternal life, there's, I'll just be very honest with you, except for sleep, there is absolutely nothing I can think of that I want to do for more than five hours right? There's nothing I want to do for more than five hours except for maybe sleep. And so when I hear in the Bible eternal life, I think, I'm tempted to think, this is more a confession than anything else, how boring, Especially when every depiction you see in popular media about heaven is sitting there on a cloud strumming a harp or something. That looks incredibly boring to me. I wouldn't want to do that for five minutes, much less five hours, or much less an eternity. But brothers and sisters, that is not heaven. That is a weird view of eternity that is not going to be our reality. I think that when it says eternal life, God is so big, he is so deep, so high, so wide, he is so completely without borders, There is no end to him. 
We could never tire of such a God in eternity or exhaust the limits of his newness. We'll never get bored with God. We'll never get to the point even a million billion years in where we're like, I've got this guy figured out. It'll be an unending surprise and delight in his presence. In Psalm 16, 11, it says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures forevermore. And the great thing is that eternal life is not interrupted at death. In John eleven twenty five 25 through 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I have loved ones who have fallen asleep in the Lord, and I miss them. But the truth is, they're not dead. God says they shall never die, and he's not a liar. They're not dead. All of those who have put their trust in Jesus will never die. But it's also true that in John 6:40 Jesus said, "This is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day." You see Jesus is not only the life, he is also the resurrection. He's the resurrection and the life. And that is what my hope is as a Christian. That is the great, sure, and certain Christian hope of the Bible. That one day, all of those who fell asleep in the Lord, having put their trust in Jesus alone for salvation, will come out of the grave. They'll exchange this rotten body, this broken body, this body marred by sin, exchange it for a new heavenly one. And so that is the great hope of John 3.16. We have a problem, but God is not apathetic or distant or uncaring. He does not delight in our troubles. He's done something about it. He's done what is needed and necessary, something we could not have done for ourselves. And his motive in doing that thing is love. God loves you. And that love is sure and certain and unchanging because it's not rooted in your merit He does not love you because you're attractive today, and it might be pulled from you if you prove yourself unattractive tomorrow. He loves you, why? Well, he loves you because of who he is, not because of who you are. And because that's true, it's unchanging. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever, because God himself is immutable and unchanging. That's his motive, and it's not going away. You can rest in it. It's secure. You can take it to the bank. And... The means by which he's done it is an amazing transaction in which all of our sins were taken and put on Jesus and we were given his reward. And the end result of all that is our hope for eternity, a hope beyond this life. The great enemy of death has won and our victory is made secure in him, in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths out of John 3.16. And God, John 3.16, for all of its familiarity, God, never loses its flavor. 
God, I never grow tired of the truths that are contained in this statement of Jesus. We just enjoy you so much this morning, God. We thank you, Lord, that you're not the sort of deity who would have us sacrifice our children to placate you. But God, you are the God who sacrificed himself to elevate us unbelievably. You didn't require us to do things for you, but you did it all for us. And Father, we celebrate you today. We give you our lives. How could we respond? Father, as it says in Romans 12, 1, that in light of the mercies of, of God, that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. Father, help us respond this week to the incredible truths of John 3.16 by living a yielded life, an obedient life. You don't ask us to die for you today, but you do command us to live for you. And even when the moment of death comes, God, we trust in the God who is not only the life but the resurrection, that even though we die, we live. Father, we look forward to the promised day, and maybe it's even today when Jesus returns and all those graves are robbed, and we will enter into pleasures at your right hand forevermore. And I pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.